I don't know if you had an opportunity uh, yesterday to watch or listen to any of the coverage, any of the media coverage or documentaries, the memorial services that were on. Some of them, I'm just going to say, I, were just too hard for me to watch. We had one on that I just I had to turn it off. I couldn't handle it. Uh, um, others were very stirring as we remember the evil and the destruction of, of 9-11 20 years ago, the fear, the darkness, again, seeing people weep and seeing names read and, and, and grieving. But yet, as many people have pointed out over the last 20 years, from nearly the moment that those four planes crashed, we saw and heard stories of, of great courage and sacrifice and even redemption here in our nation. And, and whether it was the people that pulled together to take down the terrorists on Flight 93, or whether it was the police and the firemen that were literally running into burning towers as others were running away, whether it was the resolve that, that the men and women that, that went down to Ground Zero in, in New York City for hours and days, dug and dug and dug, searching for survivors. Only 18 people were pulled out, but yet they persisted and they continued. And so these stories of, of courage and, and, and God at work ring out through the horror of that day. And there are stories of faith as well, stories of, of God working in the midst of the tragedy, His grace at work. And, and we remember seeing uh, rescue workers praying together and, 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 and government officials praying, communities across the nation. I remember our, our community in Elkton, Maryland got together for a prayer service, a national day of prayer set aside, Billy Graham bringing the gospel to this national service. And so we saw testimonies of, of the gospel going out and ringing true. And there are countless accounts of survivors, people that have survived that day, coming to faith in Christ and, 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 and that tragedy testifying to the goodness of God. One testimony that I saw recently online, and you may have read it from Brian and Christina Stanton. They were in their early 30s at the time of, of 9-11. They were in a high-rise apartment on the 24th floor, just six blocks from 9-11. And, and, and they got, had gone out to their balcony because of the commotion. When the second plane hit, they reported that they literally were blown back off of their feet from the impact and the explosion and fell down in their apartment. They immediately grabbed a couple of small items and ran down 24 flights of stairs and, and, and ran to try to find some coverage away from the building in, in a park. And they testify that they're hovering by a brick wall. This, this black cloud of smoke just engulfed them. And in that moment, they thought, this is it. We're going to die. And, and the Lord spared them. Um, and they survived that day. And, and in the weeks that followed, they faced tremendous trauma and fear. And yet in the midst of that, God began to draw them. And, and, and they lost both of their jobs and, and at a friend's recommendation, they went to Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City because literally millions of dollars had flooded into Redeemer to give out to people in need. And so they went somewhat reluctantly to, to get help with their, with their now desperate financial situation. And, and sitting there with those Christians at that church and, and receiving a check from them, they, they saw humility and the grace of God at work. And so while they previously had no interest, in the weeks that followed, they went and visited Redeemer Church, and they heard the gospel, and they saw the generosity and the care of this church, and they themselves began to, to, to feel and receive the touch of Jesus, and receive healing, and receive transformation from their trauma, and their fear, and their grief. And they tell the story that they got connected to the church. They eventually jumped headlong into ministry, serving, and in missions trips. They eventually came onto the church staff, uh, Brian Stanton, I believe, is, is still the CFO of, of Redeemer 
church and all of their ministries. And, and Christina wrote a, a book, a memoir, testifying, and her title says it all. It's simply called Out of the Shadow of 9-11. And out of the shadow and the brokenness and the darkness of that day, they came to life and many others have as well. The testimony of their faith, the grace of God through their story now rings out to a nation and to a world. In the midst of the affliction, our faith can ring out. The Gospel has rung out through that tragedy and through so many more since Christ's return. And that's what we're going to read about today in First Thessalonians chapter 1. This story that we introduced ourselves to last week. Seeing and reading how the Gospel came to the church in Thessalonica amidst much conflict and much adversity. But when Paul and Silas send Timothy back to check on them, Timothy comes back with this glowing report that their faith is strong. Not only that, their faith we're going to read is ringing out to the region around them. That through adversity, Christ is making Himself known and their, their faith has become exemplary. And it, and, it, and it spreads out to the world around them. Their strong faith is a testimony to the power of the Gospel. And so we're going to read this morning from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I hope you'll follow along with us. invite you to do that every Sunday. We have uh, Thessalonian Gospel uh, uh, Scripture journals for you to make use of on Sunday mornings and in your life groups. So hear now the Word of God. Hear now the testimony of this early church and their faith that rang out testifying to the grace and the goodness of God. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, whom delivers us from the wrath to come. Amen. Amen. What a beautiful story and a testimony of God's work in these people's lives. People that were no different than you and I at the end of the day. Just sinners receiving God's grace. We're going to unpack this, this section this morning, as you can see in your bulletin and on the screen, in four different sections. The first section, verses 1-3, to three, we see the faith, the love, and the hope of the Thessalonians. Paul opens his letter, listing himself first, most likely the, the main author of the, of the letter. In fact, sometimes he, he, he names himself in the first person, but the, the letter is, is written often uh, from all three of them, from Silas and Timothy. Silvanus is the Latin form of the Hebrew name Silas, which is, which is how he's listed in Acts. And I'm going to refer to him as Silas because it's easier to say. Uh, Timothy was the young partner of Paul and Silas. He had, had been converted, became Paul's protege and spiritual son. And the three of them ministered together, spreading the gospel, planting churches, 
across the Mediterranean. And this letter is sent with the grace and the peace of God, they say, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And they express gratitude in the opening of the letter, which Paul often does. But, but this, this letter stands out. He says that they're constantly thanking God the Father for the believers at Thessalonica. Now normally when you thank somebody, you thank somebody for something that they've done. These believers haven't done anything for Paul and Silas and Timothy, at least not that's mentioned. What they're thanking them for is thanking them for their great faith. Giving thanks for their faith and their love and their hope. The example and the encouragement that it is to them and the others. We see there in in verse 3, their faith, love, and hope. Those three concepts are linked together, of course, in other places in the New Testament. We see there their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. Just to break those down for a minute, work of faith, other translations and other commentators say that, that we can see that as their work produced by faith. See, see, true faith always stirs us to action, stirs us to live out our faith in obedience. True faith always produces work. James reminds us in his letter that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith without works is dead. It's not true faith unless it stirs you to live it out. Labor of love. They're, they're labors that are produced by their love. Friends, true love drives us to labor for others, to serve others, to sacrifice for others, to put the needs of others above your own. As we read last month in John's epistle, that if we have the opportunity to meet somebody's needs and we close our hearts to them, That the love of God must not really be filling us and abiding us. Because if the love of God is truly filling us, it will stir us to labor for others. If we know God, we must act in love towards others. And thirdly, they mention their their steadfastness of hope. Endurance is another word there. The endurance in their life that's produced by their hope. Now listen, if things are easy and smooth for you in life right now, you don't need endurance. I mean, you, you just live. You just wake up and you just go. Things are easy. See, only when it's hard do you need endurance. Of course, for most of us, there's, there's, all, there's always some kind of hardship going on. And hope is what motivates us to endure in the midst of hardship. In hope, we can hang on through the difficulty. Now, what is our ultimate hope as Christians? Our ultimate hope is to some degree in the past and what Christ has done, but our greatest hope is in the future and, and, and what Christ will do, that He will come again. Christ is coming again to heal and restore this world, to heal and restore our lives fully and finally as we meet the Lord Jesus, come into His presence. As Paul reminds us in the book of Romans, suffering produces endurance because endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And the hope that we have as Christians does not disappoint because God's love has been poured out to us by the Holy Spirit. And that love will be manifest again and again and again. First Thessalonians is going to direct us to look ahead to the coming of Christ. And we'll see that theme this fall. Now the faith and the love and the hope that are so profound in the lives of, of those Thessalonian Christians is not from themselves. What does it say in verse 3? It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in His grace. It's by His strength that they stand in faith and stand in love and stand in hope. And we need that same type of, of faith and love and hope now in our day. Because hard times continue for many of us. And some of you today are facing family struggles that you can barely bring yourself to speak about. Some of you today are struggling with your faith and you're here today not even sure if you believe. Some of you have children that are hurting, that are in pain, that the thought of what they're going through is breaking you. 
Of course, there's ongoing COVID concerns, and now this week, these newly announced, certainly controversial federal vaccine guidelines. One more thing to bring division, tension, struggle. Of course, some in this country support the new plan, while others are upset by it. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about, and honestly, you may not even care. But the reality is that vaccines ha- have been, and I think are, are becoming an increasingly volatile topic. Look, just to address it for a minute, my family and I have already been vaccinated, but for others, there may be a very difficult decision laying ahead, depending upon how these, these new guidelines actually are carried out. And in light of all these things going on, for, for some, things, things might get, get easier for you in the weeks and months to come. But for others, things may be about to, to, to become a whole lot harder. And, and listen, I, I, I'm a pastor. Only time's gonna tell whether this new federal plan is gonna, in fact, decrease the spread of COVID. But my fear is, and I think we've already seen it even in the last few days, that it's gonna increase tension and turmoil in our nation. And so I would ask you and plead with you to join me in praying. Praying for wisdom. Praying for our doctors, our nurses, our scientists, our politicians, our, our business owners. Because this thing that we originally thought was only gonna last six weeks is, is going on and on and on. But I'm not a scientist, I'm not a politician, I'm a pastor. And so my primary concern, Christian, is how are we going to stay faithful? How are we going to stay faithful in these difficult times? How are we going to continue to move through a period of division and confusion? Are we going to do so in anger as much as the world is? Are we going to react with cynicism as many people have? Are we going to just get more critical and more judgmental about people around us that differ with us? People around us that have different convictions or different ways to handle it? Are we going to give in to discouragement about the state of our political climate? Discouragement about the state of our world? Maybe some are just going to put their head in the sand. That's not how we are called to live. See, like the Thessalonians, like those brothers and sisters, the call today, Christian, is to stand in faith. To stand in love. To stand in hope. And I'm going to plead with God, God, send your grace to stir in us the kind of exemplary faith that we read about in the Scriptures. Because it's not just something we can read about, it's something we can see. Faith that would lead us to obedience, to action. Call us to be humble, to be selfless, to be wise in these difficult days. Wise in our attitudes and our actions. That we would pray and ask God, stir us in love. Stir us with the same kind of love that cannot be denied. The love that You have poured out to others, may we pour it out to the people around us that we could sacrifice for others, that we could assume the best of others, put the needs of others above our own, even if we don't agree on what that looks like, what that means. God's calling us to to love in our hearts and in our actions. Stir us to hope. Friends, listen, Christ is coming. Maybe it's tomorrow, and, and there's many, many days that I plead that it is tomorrow. But maybe He will tarry And so the call is that we stand in hope, unified in Christ. We may not be unified about much, but here at Living Hope, we can be unified in Christ. We can be unified with with Christian brothers and sisters that are holding on to the Gospel, holding on to the hope of Christ. That even in the face of hardships and uncertainty, even in the face of disagreement, we can be steadfast. We can have an unshaking faith and hope and love 
through what Christ has done and is doing and will do in us. See, look, no matter what lays ahead for our nation, no matter what, what is in the future for you and for your family, my prayer and I, I hope that our prayer would be that our love and our faith would ring out, just as, it, as we read here, that it would ring out to the glory of Christ, to the glory of our King Jesus. And so we read about their, their faith and their love and their hope and, and we see in the next section, verses 4 and 5, how the Gospel originally came to them. We read that it came to them in word, in power, in conviction, in the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, Paul writes to the brothers and sisters, he says, You are loved by God. We know that our Heavenly Father has chosen you, that He selected you by His sovereign grace to be His children. Now, how does Paul have the affirmation that they are chosen by God? It's because of how they responded when the good news was presented to them, what Paul calls our gospel, he says the way you responded confirms that you belong to Jesus. And so we present the gospel to ourselves first and foremost, to our families, to our church community, and to the world around us, whether believer or unbeliever, the only hope that we have, the message that we need to hear again and again is the gospel. We can think of the gospel in four parts. God, our God is, is a powerful creator that created heaven and earth. And He's a loving Father that desires relationship with all of His creatures, desires His blessing to be on creation. But we can secondly think about the Gospel in terms of humanity. That while we were created in the image of God, we turned from Him, we broke, we rebelled away. And that relationship broke and, and through sin, death came in and through death, disease came in to our nation. And so the reality is that while God created us to walk with Him in relationship our sin has driven us away. And so thirdly, we think about the Gospel in terms of Christ. The One that came, fully God, fully man, that lived the righteous life of love and obedience, that died on the cross, taking on our brokenness, our sins, dying as a substitute, rising again in victory, and yes, the promise of His return, which is an essential part of the Gospel. And then the fourth crucial part of the Gospel that we need to preach to ourselves and to anyone who will listen is our response. That the Gospel is only good news if you hear it, if you listen to it, and if you turn. And the initial response is to turn from your unbelief. Turn from, from sin and death. Turn from rebellion and to turn back toward God. Turn back to your Creator. And to, to fall down in faith. Cry out to Him for mercy. And trust Christ as Savior and know that there is victory. This is the Gospel that the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy proclaimed to the Thessalonians. And it's the Gospel that, friend, you need to hear this morning. Maybe you've never heard it that way. Or maybe the Lord is bringing it to, to, to your mind in a new way this morning. Put your hope in Christ. And be transformed as we see these early Christians. The Gospel that was brought to them and that I pray is, is brought to us what does it say there? Four aspects in word, in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Each of those elements are so crucial. The Gospel came to them in word. Referring to the fact that, that Paul's ministry was through the spoken word. We saw last week in Acts 17 how he went into the synagogue and he proclaimed Christ. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He used the Word of God to proclaim to them the truth of Christ. Explaining and proving that the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, was, was prophesied in Scripture. That it was necessary. And so we need to bring the Gospel to ourselves every day in Word through the Scriptures. And when you're discouraged, read the Word. 
Friends, wouldn't it be beautiful if we all woke up two hours early and spent 45 minutes studying and, and proclaiming the Word of God? But, but, but that may not be realistic for you. But you know what is realistic? You can put a Bible app on your phone, and, and when you're at the red light, or before you leave the house, or when you get to work and park the car, or, or before the kids wake up, you can pull up a Bible app and you can read one verse. Now, listen, don't, don't go home and say, oh, good, Pastor Tim said I only need to read one verse. No, no, I'm just saying let's just start there, right? Let the Word of God and the truth of God feed you His Gospel on a daily basis. And then let that speak out to your families. Proclaim the Gospel to your families in word. Proclaim the Gospel to one another in your life groups, in your accountability groups. And let's proclaim the Gospel to the lost, to friends and neighbors in word. We must speak the Gospel. Romans 10.14 says, How will they then call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That word preaching doesn't mean standing behind a pulpit like I'm doing. It simply means proclaiming good news to those around you. And so we proclaim the Gospel in word, but not only in word. What does it also say there? The Gospel comes in power. Now commentators say this reference here to the Gospel coming in power could refer to the power of preaching... Or it also could refer to the power that often accompanied the gospel through miracles. And so you know me, I'm going to say both whenever possible, right? I think power here speaks about the power of the spoken word and the power of the miraculous power that accompanied so many Christians. See, the gospel is not just a written statement, not just a a proclamation you read and affirm. It's the power of God for salvation. And we read in Scripture that in Paul's ministry, in the ministry of others, that that power was demonstrated in extraordinary miracles. As they spoke the hope of Christ, it was demonstrated. Romans 15, Paul writes there, we have this on the screen as well, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. By word and deed. By the power of signs and wonders. By the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the Gospel of Christ. To truly fulfill the ministry of the Gospel of Christ, we need to bring the Gospel in in word and in deed. And so we pray and we ask Holy Spirit as we bring the Gospel daily to our lives, to our families, to our church community, to a, a dying world. Would you stir the power of God? That God might even work now through His miraculous power. That the Gospel would be affirmed among us through testimonies of healing, through freedom from demonic oppression, through signs of God's grace that would be undeniable, that would confirm the Word of the Gospel proclaimed. And we pray for that in faith. And we act in hope. See, ultimately, the power that we have to deliver the Gospel in both Word and Indeed, is only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's mentioned next in the letter that the Gospel comes in the Holy Spirit. There in verse 5. See, the Holy Spirit is the one that manifests the presence of God. The Holy Spirit is the one that brings the Word into action. The Holy Spirit is the one that brings the power of miracles to confirm the Gospel. The Gospel is shared... And by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, people are convicted of their sin. The Gospel's truth is confirmed in the hearts of men and women. 
And we bring the Gospel again to ourselves and we proclaim the truth of Christ and our need for forgiveness. Our need on a daily basis to come to Jesus again for forgiveness, for new life, for the resurrection. And pray every day that the Holy Spirit would give you faith to believe because apart from the Holy Spirit, we cannot believe. And we pray for our children and our spouses that are hurting, that the Holy Spirit would minister to them and stir faith in them. We pray for our Christian community as you minister to brothers and sisters. We pray for the lost, that as we bring the Gospel in word and power, it would come in the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, to open up their hearts. In 1 Corinthians 2, I love this passage. Paul talks about his ministry of the gospel. He said, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in fear and weakness and in much trembling. But my message and my gospel were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Friends, we need to know the Scriptures. We need to build trust with those in need. We need to proclaim truth with clarity. But at the end of the day, unless the Holy Spirit comes with power, whether it's here behind this pulpit, or whether it's in the break room at work, or whether it's by yourself in bed, or whether it's ministering to your children in need, unless the Holy Spirit comes in power, it's all in vain. And so we minister in word, in power, by the Holy Spirit. And it says that the Gospel came to that early church with deep conviction. Paul there means that, that, that they who spoke had full assurance that what they were saying was true. Paul was even willing to give up his prominence as a Jewish Pharisee. He faced stoning, arrest, even the threat of death, ultimately death. Why? Because he had full conviction that what he was proclaiming was true. Friends, people know whether we believe what we're saying or not. Let's not be like salesmen that don't actually use the product. Let's not be like salesmen that don't actually believe that what we're peddling brings life. Paul and Silas and Timothy truly believed that what they were saying was true. They came with sincerity and with integrity. Listen, if you do not believe it, nobody else will. Your children will not believe it. Your unbelieving spouse will not believe it. Your friends and neighbors will not believe it. People often need to see it to believe it. They need to see the Gospel at work in your life. And the first, the primary, the the, the first thing you need to do, fathers, mothers, is to desperately and dearly hold on to Jesus before your children. Let them see your love for Christ. Let them see when you stumble. Let them see when you fail. And let them see who you go to, that you go back to Christ. Go back to the cross. Go back to the resurrection. That's what deep conviction means. Paul expounds in verse 5 on what this deep conviction looks like. How it was displayed in the city. He says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you. See, they lived in the the city of Thessalonica for months at least. And and they proved that they believed what they were saying. and, 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 And the testimony of their life proved that the gospel was true. He says, you know how we lived among you. We were concerned for you. You know how we put up with those false accusations and the persecution and the, and, and the threat of arrest. Why? For your benefit, for your blessing. As we'll read in chapter 2 next week, they shared not only the Gospel, but their own lives. Proving the veracity of the Gospel. 
See, they didn't just preach the gospel, they actually believed it. And they didn't just believe it, they lived it. That deep conviction. And so as we proclaim the gospel first to ourselves, then to our families, then to our fellow Christians, then to a lost world, we do so in word, in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction, with the faith that He stirs in us, proven through the way that we live. And by the way, proving it through the way that you live doesn't mean you never mess up. It means when you mess up, when you fall into sin, you run to Jesus and you let the world know that's where you've run. So we see the Gospel, how it's worked in their lives, and, and next we see how God has worked through these leaders, through Paul and Silas and Timothy, and through their followers in verses 6, 7, and 8, to stir faith in them, to call them to imitate them, and, and, and eventually, that the Thessalonians themselves would be a, a resounding example of strong faith. Look at verse 6. It says that they became imitators of us and of the Lord. They imitated the strong faith of those early leaders. That just as they had received the Word of God, just as they had heard the Gospel and saw the Gospel at work in Paul and Silas and Timothy, it began to work in them. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 11, Be imitators of Me as I am of Christ. Can, can we say that this morning? I, I, I want to be able to say that. Imitate Me. Imitate Me. But only as I imitate Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And only by His grace can we live that out. Paul would say that they believed in Christ in the midst of much affliction. They faced severe persecution. As we heard last week, the whole city was in an uproar. Violence and and, and mobs rioting had started in the city. They were accusing the Christians of of treason against the government. Trying to seek their execution. And, and, And the Thessalonian Christians... Heard the gospel in the midst of that kind of affliction. Heard the gospel in the midst of that kind of persecution. And yet they believed. Because they were imitating the faith of Paul and Silas and Timothy. They didn't just receive the word reluctantly. What does it say there? They received the word with joy. See, the Bible teaches us again and again that we can rejoice even in the midst of suffering. Even in the midst of hardships. And so whatever suffering or hardship you're facing right now, as maybe your faith is waning, don't just pray, God, give me courage to stand. Pray, God, give me courage to stand with joy. And so we pray with with Psalm 51.12, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. God, restore to me joy. Not just faith, not just peace, but joy. Even in the midst of hardship and affliction. See, what happened there, we read in verse 7, is that the faith and the joy of the Thessalonians became an example, became a pattern, a model to believers across the whole region of Macedonia and Achaia. Not just there, but all over. The testimony of their faith sounded out. Some translations say that as it rang out. Their faith rang out like a trumpet, as an encouragement, as a testimony. A trumpet can literally be heard for miles and miles around. But how much further does the testimony of the Gospel at work in our lives ring out across the world when God is truly at work? As the testimony of of faithful brothers and sisters is passed on, the Gospel rings out everywhere. And Paul says here, look, we don't even need to say anything about your faith. We're hearing about your faith from other people. Your faith speaks for itself because the gospel is being spread all around the region as the testimony of their lives is going out. In verse 9, he says, people are reporting about what the gospel has done in you and your faith 
And as your testimony spreads, the gospel is spreading. And as the gospel spreads, the ministry of Paul and Silas is being validated. All because they imitated Paul as Paul imitated Christ. A man said in in our life group this week, he said that the, the primary reason, or one of the big reasons he comes to life group, one of the big reasons he shows up is to hear what's going on in the lives of other people. Not in like a Snoopy way, but to be encouraged. To see mature faith. To see victory in the midst of hardship. To see people standing and pursuing reconciliation and love and faith and hope in the midst of the trials in their life. And he said, I come here so that I can be lifted up and encouraged. Mature men and women of God, you may not need us you may not need accountability groups. You may not need life groups. You may not need to, to, to meet up with coffee with brothers and sisters in the church, but we need you. We need your example of faith to imitate. Are you seeking God's grace? Are you seeking God's spirit? Are you speaking, seeking godly men and women to imitate so that you can be an example for others? There's not any one of us that can truly stand and be an example for others unless you have someone that you're looking to as your example. You see how this works? You have to look to someone who's overcome so that you can be an example for others to overcome. For me, one of those men in my lives is is John Guido, someone that I look to as an example to imitate. Some of you know John. He's been a pastor in Ecuador for decades. I've known him for 20 plus years. He's planted Multiple churches now oversees a network of a dozen different churches. And as we read in verse 5, he's a man that has proven his faith. Not only in ministry, but with his wife, with his children, with his grandchildren. He's now in his 60s, but rather than just coasting in ministry, about two years ago, right before COVID hit, he was sent out to, to plant a new, a, new, a new church on the other side of the city to start over again because he believes in the hope of Christ. He, he recently suffered such severe back pain that he could only stand for about 15 minutes at a time. Couldn't even preach because he couldn't stand that long. He eventually got an, an appointment with a surgeon in the States in the midst of COVID. Had, had to go through all the rigmarole to travel back to the States and, 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 and get his, his uh, appointment. He ended up staying in the States for, uh, I don't know, six, six eight weeks and, and had surgery. And by God's grace... The surgery was successful and, and he's experiencing tremendous healing. Now, now listen, this guy's done enough. Like just stay in the U.S., just retire, just coast it out with your kids and your grandkids. But, but he's back in Ecuador leading, serving, ministering. That's where his home is. That's where his heart is. Now here's the thing. Here's one of the reasons why I imitate John. Why I desire to imitate him. If you ask him what is your greatest delight, in life and in ministry, I have no doubt that the first thing he would say is my greatest delight is seeing my two sons serving in ministry in the church in Ecuador. Seeing my daughter loving the Lord and raising her children in Oregon. I mean, his heart is for Christ. And so I called him two weeks ago. Actually, I emailed him. I said, man, we got to get on Zoom together. I'm feeling weighed down. I'm feeling discouraged. I need some John Guido. I need some encouragement. And so we set up a time and we Zoomed. And he poured into me and encouraged me because he's an example. And if I'm going to be an example to my my children, if I'm going to be an example to this community, 
I need people to imitate, as do we all. Let God stir in us exemplary faith. Let us be an example to one another in our successes and in our failures, in our strengths and in our weaknesses. That we could serve as examples to one another. That our faith would ring out, just as we read here, that their faith rang out. Finally, we see in verses 9 and 10, we see how the Gospel is described in their lives. How them coming to God is described. It's described as turning, as serving, and as waiting. Look at verse 9. They had turned to God from idols. Likely a large portion of this church had come from pagan religion, from Greco-Roman background, where idol worship was common. Literal idols. See, before they had turned away, they were following an old life that was built around idol worship and myths and lies, a hopeless, meaningless, joyless life. But there are idols around us as well. See, an idol is anything in creation, anything that we create, seemingly good or seemingly bad, anything that you worship, anything that you follow, anything that you give yourself to, other than the Creator Himself. Now, an idol is easy to see because you've made it with your hands. But how many other idols are aspects of creation, not the Creator. How many other idols are things that we've built, that we've constructed with our own hands, our own energy, thinking that if we serve the thing that we made, somehow it's going to fulfill us, somehow it's going to rescue us. And so we serve the idol of money, or the idol of influence and power, or the idol of fame and reputation, or the idol of pleasure, thinking that food and alcohol or tobacco or sex or entertainment somehow are going to minister to the needs of our soul. But listen, idols are not real gods. And idols make empty promises they could never deliver on. And the Scriptures teach that when you put your trust in something that you yourself have created, it's vanity. See, idols are not alive. They don't see. They don't hear. They can't help us. All they do is enslave you to a cycle of dependence that never fulfills They can't rescue you, forgive you, bring you life. Any and everything outside of the true and living God is lifeless. And the Bible says quite clearly that those who trust in them become like them. And if you are trusting in something that's lifeless and empty, you will become lifeless and empty. But when we put our faith in the Gospel, it says here that we turn from idols. And verse 9 says, we turn and we now serve the living and true God. See, unlike vain idols, unlike a counterfeit God, our God is living. He is true. The God who made heaven and earth is alive. What He says is true. What He does is true. He is living. He is active. He is working in our lives. Working for our good. And Jesus said in John 17 that this is eternal life. That they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is eternal life? It's to know the living God. To worship Him and Him alone. And so we serve this God. The idea there is that we're bond servants. We're bound to Him. We pledge our allegiance. We follow Him. We obey Him. We devote ourselves to the living God and we worship Him. And as we, once we've turned from those idols, as we serve the living and true God, verse 10 says that we wait. We wait for the Son of God. And and waiting is not passive. It's not sitting back and chilling and doing nothing. Waiting is active. It's an active posture. It's this eager expectation that God will come. It's a patient endurance that in the midst of hardship, God will have victory. It's a certain hope that Christ 
will return from heaven and transform this world into a new heaven and a new earth. And we have a certain hope. Why? What is our hope ground in? It's ground in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We wait for the Son from heaven who was raised from the dead. This is the Jesus that delivers us. That will rescue us, it says, from the wrath of God at the end of the age. Because when this sinful world is destroyed, when those who are in rebellion are sentenced to judgment, only those that are crying out to Christ will be spared. And so we call out to God today, on this day, for mercy, for hope, for forgiveness. Knowing that Jesus has delivered us through His death from sin. Has delivered us from the judgment of God. Has delivered us from the power of the devil. From the flight fright of death. He has rescued us and He is coming again to rescue us fully and finally. And so in faith, brothers and sisters, turn from those idols and and maybe you've turned but you, you sometimes look back to those things thinking that they'll meet your needs. We serve the living and true God and we await now on the appearing of our great God and Savior who will transform us into His glory. And that is our hope today and every day. And so now, as, as we prepare to turn our hearts to feast on the Lord's Supper, as the worship team comes to lead us, we remind us again of this sacrifice, of this tangible expression of, of the death of Jesus. That this table is, is a symbol. It's, it's a tangible action of the Gospel. The Gospel that comes in word, in power, in conviction, and in the Holy Spirit. It's a reminder The call to to turn from idols, to serve the living God, to wait for Him. And so as we feast in a moment, we're going to pray, God, stir our faith, that our faith would ring out to others, to transform us to be examples that others can imitate. And may God give us the grace to live with a faith that is working, a love that is laboring, a hope that is enduring.